Turn with me to Isaiah 65. As we continue to work our way through the book of Isaiah, we'll only be working our way through the book of Isaiah one more week after this one, because there's only 66 chapters, and we'll be covering all of 66 next week. And then after that, we'll be looking at the book of Galatians. It seems like we've been in Isaiah a long time. That's because we have. But it's been a good thing, and I look forward to, again, opening God's Word this morning and looking at it. Before we do that, let's go to Him in prayer and ask for so. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we pray that as You are here with us now, because we are here, Your people gathered together to worship You, we know that You are here in our midst. We pray that you would help us as we come to your word. Your word is full of difficult things, difficult sayings, things that are hard for us, even though they are clear on the page, they're still hard for us to understand or even just deal with. And it's because we are a difficult people, we are obstinate, we are disobedient. And so, Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would use it to change us. You are unchanging. Help us to know that. And help us to be changed by your word. That as we hear your word, as we understand your word, that you would mold us to be more like yourself. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as I read through 65... Chapter 65, there is a a clear divide between the people of God and the people who are not of God. And it made me think of this book called The Tale of Two Cities by uh, an author by the name of Charles Dickens. You've probably heard of it before. If you haven't read it, it's definitely worth your time. In it, the cities that he's comparing here are Paris and London during the French Revolution. And one is a place of freedom, that's London, and the other is a place of discord and deception, and that's Paris. And in the midst of it, you have families on both sides of the discussion. These families are all linked in some way, and then there's characters that are caught in the middle, between literally between life and death. And one of the characters, in order to overcome this, actually just gives himself a new identity altogether in order to leave his former life behind and in order to find a new one of freedom and hope. It's a story of redemption. Again, I strongly recommend it if you are trying to put a reading list together for 2022. In our text today, we have this same kind of thing happening. But rather than people deciding to change their ways, we have a God who comes in and decides to save some for himself and to leave others to reject him. And it's a hard picture if we focus on the condemnation of those who reject God, which oftentimes we want to do. But it's a wonderful picture of grace and mercy if we understand that when even one is saved. When even one is saved, it is an infinite work of mercy that he has done. As we work through the text, it serves as a great backdrop for this biblical understanding of what we know about depravity, of what we know about regeneration. And so we'll be considering it to that end. We'll see the one who makes it all possible, of course, 
our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to offer himself as a ransom for many so that we could be brought from death and into life. So we'll consider those two natures, the ones who remain in darkness and then the ones who are called out of darkness and into light. And so with that, look with me at the text, Isaiah 65. We'll be looking together with it in its entirety. So please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 65, starting at verse 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs, who spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah's, uh, from Judah's possessors my, of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down, and for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But when you did, but, but you did what was evil in my eyes, and you chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God: Behold, my servants shall eat, and you, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart, and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will be put to death, but his servants will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem 
to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall it be heard in, in, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain to bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the, blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy all in my holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just a little bit of context where we were in Isaiah 64 last week. Isaiah 64 was where Isaiah prayed that the Lord would rend the heavens and come down, if you remember. We considered that prayer, and remember with the Lord's coming, there was going to be kind of this double-edged sword. With the Lord's coming, he was going to, he's asking the people for salvation, but he's also going to get judgment as well. Coming face to face with the Lord means deliverance in one sense. But it also means that you are exposed completely in another. So in our passage today, we have God's answer to Isaiah's prayer. He comes down and he lays out for the people the reality of their situation. And to be sure, these are things that Isaiah has been preaching for years. These are the point of his ministry. It's not as if we're getting to 65 and we're seeing this whole new idea that the Lord is laying out. He's been doing this forever. Yet, this is to an obstinate people. They need to hear it again. Just like us. We need to hear it again. And this passage lays out clearly, as any, the divide between those who are God's remnant and those who will remain in their sin. This idea is at the crux of God's plan for salvation. That all people need salvation and that some of them will be saved so as we look at this passage we'll see not only his people that are changed but we're also going to see this idea of the entire world being made new in, in the as he plans out his salvation and that brings us to the first point the ones who remain in darkness look at me again at verses one and two remember isaiah is praying Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Here's God's answer to that. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am. To a nation that has not called by name. I spread my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. So God's answer to Isaiah's prayer, which is basically, where are you, God, is for God to come down and to say to him, I've always been here. 
It's not as if he was in a far-off place, God, in this far-off place, and he just kind of heard Isaiah, oh, it sounds like someone's calling for me. It's not as if he's hard of hearing. He's been there the whole time. And granted, Isaiah knows this. Absolutely he does. But it didn't seem like God was near when that nation was going through the difficulty that it had been going through, both with Assyria and the future prophecy that they would go through with Babylon. So God further makes his point. I was ready to be sought out. I was ready to be found. I spread out my hands to you, a rebellious people. You get the picture of God reaching out to save them. And they are slapping his hands away. No. No, I don't need that. And he goes into detail about them slapping their, his hands away. What is it? And he read verses 3 and following. There are people who provoke him to his face. They do this various acts of pagan worship that he goes through. And in verse 5, he says, this is what they say to God. Notice, this is what the people have said to God. Keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you, God. Hmm. It's the picture of the 15-year-old kid who thinks that they're grown and are now able to inform their parents on the intricacies of the world. I deal with this all the time in my classroom. All of us who are parents know full well what this looks like, both as children, remembering what we were as children, and now experiencing this with our own. Imagine God looking on and them saying to him, please go away, I'm too good for you. That's exactly what happened in the garden long ago with Adam and Eve. Well, you know what, God? I heard those instructions loud and clear, but I really don't agree with them. That attitude has stayed around with man ever since. And it is currently one-to-one ratio of those people who have this attitude toward God from time to time. This is a perfect picture of the fall of man and what it did to our nature. In our fallen nature, we can't possibly imagine a world for we aren't God. Any time that we are faced with the realization then that we're not in control, that we aren't God, what do we do? We lash out at the one true God. Rather than acknowledge Him, rather than bow at His feet, instead we curse His name. We provoke Him and we say to Him, I am too holy for you. I just wish you would listen to me. We've had a lot of heartache around here recently with the tornado that recently destroyed large portions of our region. Lots of people are asking questions about God. I'm sure that you have experienced this in one form or another. And the questions are simple. They're very similar to Isaiah's. Where were you, God? Or, God is so good, then why is my house gone? If God is so good, why are my loved ones dead? And I don't discount the hurt and the pain that people are going through at all. Hurt and pain are a very real part of a sinful world. But understand that these questions come from a place of us wanting to create God in our image. We want a God that answers to us, 
rather than one who holds us accountable. Every time. That is sin in a nutshell. All sin is explained by that. So rather than seek after the one true God who explains to us here that he is easy to find, it's not like he's been gone. In fact, he's running up to us saying, here I am, here I am. He's not been, he's not been away. Instead, we push him away. We provoke him. We tell him, no, I'm too holy for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the picture of the lost world. They don't deny the existence of God. They might. They might say, no, there's no God. They don't deny the existence of God. They hate God. And yet, they desperately try to replace Him. You see the allusions to that in verses 3 through 5, with that pagan worship. And notice God's response to this. Verse 5, second part of verse 5. These, talking about those offerings that are offered to, pay, offered to pagan gods, are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Verse 6. Behold, as is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. Verses 11 and 12, he even mentions the name of a couple of pagan gods here. But you who forsake the Lord, you forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, who fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down for the slaughter. He mentions those pagan gods by name here, fortune and destiny. And notice the irony. You set a table for fortune and destiny, but it is I who control your destiny. I have destined you to the sword. Because when you called, or when I called, you did not answer. And this is hard. And I understand that. These are hard things. This is God's word. It's plain, black and white in English, right there before us. It drives home the point of the whole testimony of God's word. That man is dead in his trespasses. And outside of God's direct intervention, man will only remain that way. Not only is he going to be dead in his trespasses and sins, but will also actively reject and hate his creator. There is no passive relationship between God and man. There is none. Verses 13 through 16 go further to show us the distinctions that God has made between his people and those who are not his people. You can read those again. Behold, my servants shall eat, but you, those who are not my servants, those who are not my people, will remain hungry. And he goes on and he makes those divides there. And the first thing that we may want to ask, the first thing that is often said, you've probably heard this before, we've probably been thinking it but may not be saying it, Is this fair? Is it right that God would leave some people to this fate? And for others, He would save them. And again, those questions aren't wrong for us to ask and read about and answer, but we find the answers here in God's Word. That's it. No other place. We don't find the answers anywhere else. We have to be careful. 
because those questions that we ask show that we don't quite understand our predicament and the predicament of the lost without Jesus. Without Jesus, we are lost. And this isn't just a passive thing. It's an active thing. It's an active rejection of the Creator. No. Get away from me. I am more holy than you. It's an active rejection. Because they're born in sin. The unbeliever is born hating God. In order for them to change, there has to be a light that pierces through to the darkness and chases it away for all time. That's why you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, can say such were some of us. Because He's changed us. There has to be a change in that nature. And that's exactly what He does for us. That brings me to the next point, the ones called out of darkness. One of the interesting things about this passage here in Romans 65, or Romans 65, Isaiah 65, there are not 65 chapters in Romans, at least in my copy of God's Word, but there are 16, and then there's a 10th chapter, which Paul quotes from Isaiah 65 often in Romans 10. And in there, he's teaching that the Gentiles are being grafted into the church, or those people who are called God's people. It lines up perfectly with God's promises to Abraham that the world will be blessed through his seed, ultimately pointing to Jesus, which is going to be a big part and a big point in the book of Galatians that we'll be studying next. And with the continual promises of this book, that the promises of God will be for all of God's people who can be found in the remote places of the world, not just in Jerusalem. Paul quotes Roman, or he quotes verses 1 and 2 in Romans 10. And again, it underlies what we've been speaking of for the last few weeks even, that God alone calls a people to himself. And he calls whomever he will. Their status, their nationality, their good works, none of those things are of any consequence. He alone, God alone, calls from death into life makes those who are dead, he makes them alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we see that calling here in Isaiah 65, in verses 8 and 9. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth Offspring from Jacob, and from Judah, from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. This is a picture again of the vine dresser, which he uses often in Scripture. This is an image that Jesus borrows from later in John 15. And the vine dresser, dresser is choosing some from the cluster, and he's then throwing the rest into the fire to be destroyed. And again, this is, we might have a bit of this feeling of injustice that starts to rise in our minds. But again, understand, what do we all deserve? This is mercy, the fact that any are saved. 
The fact that a single idolatrous sinner is saved is infinite mercy. The fact that a whole people, a whole people are set aside from the foundations of the earth for himself and are called loved by the creator even though they were yet enemies, it is beyond belief that that is true. And that's exactly what God is doing. The concept of the remnant is not new here in Isaiah 65 at all. We've seen it throughout. It's not even new to the book of Isaiah. God took Abraham from among the idolatrous Chaldeans and he made a people for himself. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, not because they were the best. Just read their stories. They were far from it. Genesis takes several chapters to let us know that Jacob was a thief. He didn't choose Jacob because he was a good dude. Not at all. But because he is merciful. Because he has a plan that was his own to understand and his own to know. And again, verses 13 through 16 spell out this divide that exists between the people of God and the people who remain in darkness. It's the difference between blessings and curses, blessings that are not earned, versus curses that are earned. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift that any of us can call ourselves blessed. In this picture, God is both just and merciful, as one who carries out justice on those who reject him and who gives mercy to some for reasons only known to himself, so that he might gain the glory. And those he saves, he brings to a land overflowing with goodness. You see that in verse 10. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Acre, a place for the herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Even the readers in Isaiah's time and later could understand this, Totally. The pictures of Sharon and Acre are metaphors of God taking something that was there, that was even a site of destruction, and now making it new. He expands upon this in this next section, starting at verse 17. And again, we could spend, if we could start at 17 and spend several weeks right there, starting at 17, we've kind of went over this idea of the new heavens and the new earth in previous chapters. But in verse 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. This, is the, this idea has been prevalent even in the past 25 chapters, that God is making things new, that he has a plan not only to deliver a people for himself, but also to make the whole world, which was fallen in sin, to make the whole world new. And a people from all the nations will be drawn to his city, where the Son of God will be the light of the world. And notice the qualifications in this new world. Verse 19, there's going to be no more weeping. Verse 20, there's going to be no more death. The people are thriving in a world that is also thriving. Even the work that they do, verse 23, they shall not labor in vain. So in this new heavens and new earth, there's going to be work. But it's not going to be in vain. It's not going to seem like we're going on a hamster wheel. It's going to be a good thing for us to do this. 
We're given a new nature. We have the great picture there of the wolf and the lamb lying down together. The lion, the lion eating straw. Nothing in a lion wants to eat straw. Nothing. They want to chase and they want to kill things. This shows a new nature. There has to be something completely new for it to do that. If you change the nature of the beast, it will act according to that new nature. In the same way, brothers and sisters in Christ, the believer has a new nature and should act according to that new nature. No longer rejecting God, but instead actively reaching out to him. No longer forsaking the people of God, but instead seeking fellowship with him. No longer going their own way, but instead going the ways of God. And creation responds to this as well. No longer being subjected to the futility of sin and death, but making work a joy, growing and thriving as intended. As we read this, it should probably seem completely foreign to us because we can't understand a world like this. But in Christ, we should long for it. And we do. And at the same time, we might have some sadness knowing that for God's own glory, he decided that not all should come into this world. I want to add some New Testament distinctiveness to this. Because if we left it here, it might even seem like this impersonal kind of process. It's not at all. But it might, it might want, may make us think, well, this is some kind of weird, sadistic kind of lottery. Where random numbers are drawn and someone wins this giant prize that they didn't work for and others suffer. God brings about redemption through the use of means. He uses things. To bring about his way of redemption. And one of the means that he uses to do this is the preaching of his word. In Isaiah's time, the people were called to be ambassadors of the truth. The same is said today. Paul's treatment of this in Romans 9 and 10, he makes sure that we understand this. If you read Romans 9 and 10, you get to a point and you might think, This seems really impersonal. This seems like some random kind of lottery. Because Paul was borrowing from Isaiah right here in this exact same passage. And then Paul, also feeling that weight, gets to a point and helps us to understand that God uses means. Turn with me to Romans 10. Romans 10, and I'm going to read verses 14 through the end of the chapter. And again, have this tension. We're sitting on the edge wondering what God is going to do. How is he going to bring about salvation? How is he going to call those that are lost to him? I'll ask that question. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? 
So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, this is where he quotes from our text, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So hear that. How can those, how can a people who did not seek after God know him? How can a people who are disobedient and contrary find him through faith in God? Well, how can they possibly how can they possibly have faith in God if they hate Him? By the preaching of the good news. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. It's the work of Christ that makes it possible. The one, brothers and sisters in Christ, who stood in our place. Who stood in our place. And that, in that book that I mentioned earlier, The Tale of Two Cities, there's an act of redemption in which one who stood condemned was replaced by an innocent man. And that's exactly what happened to secure the redemption of God's people. And understand, that nature that totally rejected God had to be punished. It couldn't go unpunished. All of my sin, not only mine, yours too, all the sins of His people had to go punished. So the Lord Jesus, one who knew no sin, one who deserved no punishment, took it upon himself. The Bible tells us that he became sin. He died for those who were dead in their trespasses so that they could be made alive in him. He was killed as God's enemy for those who were actual enemies of God. And by believing this, you can be changed. Through faith, we are able to receive this message. Through the gospel, we are changed. We've been made alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. In order to bring about the salvation of all of God's people, he has decided to use the folly of preaching to do it. So we preach God's word. We preach Christ and him crucified. And that's all we preach. I make this offer to all who are here. To believers. Brothers and sisters in Christ. I have nothing to offer you but Jesus. He is the rest for your soul. Remember that today. Rest from your toil. Understand that even now He is making us new. Even as we struggle in this world, even as we fight not to reject Him, as we read in Isaiah 65, He is right now making us new. Let's long together for this new heavens and new earth. For the unbeliever, I offer you the same Christ, the same One. The way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. There is no other way. Call upon His name today and be saved. In conclusion, church, as we look to a new year, let us commit to being preachers and teachers of this message. There's no other hope. There's no other way. The Lord uses the means of the preaching of the gospel to bring about salvation of those who are His. 
Let us not only embrace it more and more ourselves, but let us be ones who proclaim to a lost world the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, many times, even in our walks with you, we are among those who provoke you to your face. Lord, we are thankful that in you, through your work in our hearts, those times are being less and less. Lord, draw us closer to you, that we might walk in all of your ways, that we might not reject your truth, but instead love it as we love you. And Lord, help us to see that this message, that you alone are Savior, that this message is the only truth that people need. There is no other hope. There is no other truth outside of the truth that you came to save the people for yourself. Lord, help us to be ambassadors of that truth, to be preachers of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.